0: Quite a few uh, years ago now, early on in my practice, I was sitting a long period of intensive retreat in Burma, which I had the luxury to do then. And I heard a simile from a young monk. It was during kind of a quiet period at the monastery, and the young monks were being given a chance to try giving Dharma talks. And he presented this one, the simile in one of his talks. And it's very simple, but it's stayed with me throughout the years. It really stuck in my mind. He described a precious mountain. Uh, This is a simile from the commentaries, possibly a real place somewhere in northern India or around the ancient world where the Buddha taught. But this mountain was famed for being shot through with valuable metals, gold and silver, and also all sorts of precious jewels, diamonds and rubies and emeralds and sapphires. So I imagined it at the time as being kind of something like the Mother Lode in California or down in Mexico, one of these places that's just uh, riddled through with all of these substances that human beings tend to be very attached to. And it was said that the, the earth of this mountain was so rich with treasures that even a blind child wandering aimlessly, picking up rocks at random, could return home with uh, their pockets filled with a king's ransom, let alone uh, a strong adult with a good working knowledge of uh, geology and gemstones and uh, tools as well to use for digging. But on the other hand, if this strong, capable person with the tools and the knowledge were handless had no hands or uh, had their hands restrained in some way so that they were deprived of the use of their hands, then they wouldn't be able to take even the smallest treasure from the mountain. Despite their strength, despite their tools, despite their knowledge, uh, they just wouldn't be able to pick anything up. Seems fairly obvious. So the pivotal faculty for gathering the treasure of that mountain, the moral of the story is just simply... hands (laughs) hands <laughs> we need hands we need some way to take hold of of what's valuable there to pick things up and put them in our pockets you know the, the tools and the knowledge and the strength that we might possess would certainly be helpful for gathering treasure from this mountain but in and of themselves without the aid of our hands they're they're useless so the young monk then went on to explain the simile in detail, which obviously a lot can be drawn out of this. Uh, the mountain full of precious treasures its not too hard to see is a, an analogy for the Dharma, which offers us the, the wonderful treasures of peace and joy and loving kindness and everything that it has to offer and the, uh, the young child, the blind child, or the knowledgeable prospector, you know, those are analogies for us, <laughs> however we might experience our, ourselves to be on the path. But what really struck me from this metaphor is, is that part about the hands, about that all-important role of the hands, which the monk explained represented the faculty of faith, that that was really the essential tool needed to gather the benefits of the dharma was just simply faith and I think this was one of those cases of you kind of hear the teaching when you're ready to hear it (laughs) you know it's not like I hadn't read about faith heard teachers talk about faith Um, but I didn't think of myself at that time as a particularly faithful person or a very faith-oriented person Um, quite the opposite actually I had been trained and working as an engineer. I have a very uh, kind of literal, (laughs) linear kind of mind. And there's really no place for blind belief on my spiritual path. That was not something that I was interested in exploring at all. What attracted me to this path of of vipassana and insight practice, as it does for many of us, is that invitation to find out for ourselves that it is so empirical, that it invites us to come and see and really confirm and explore for ourselves what is the truth. That's a large part of the appeal of this practice for many of us. But for some reason, uh, hearing the simile at this time, it gave me a bit of a a start, gave me a bit of a jolt And it caused me to begin to explore what is actually faith, you know, beyond this kind of conventional Western idea of it that I had of a blind faith, of just simply accepting doctrines because they were fed to me. And over the years since then, um, I've come to appreciate more and more really the the accuracy of this simile, of just really how spot-on it is that our entire ability, really, to do this practice and to benefit from it, it really does hinge on faith. It's such an important factor. And at times, I found um, great comfort in remembering this simile because, you know, for all of us, there are so many times in our practice when we feel like a blind child (laughs) wandering aimlessly at random (laughs) through the Dharma. Um, So it's reassuring to remember that we still got our hands, it's okay. (laughs) And also at other times, you know, we might feel like um, we have become something of an expert. We've got a certain amount of practice, a certain amount of study under our belts. We kind of know what we're doing. Um, We've gotten to subtle places in our practice. We've become sophisticated in using uh, the skillful means of meditation. So th- at those times it can also be helpful to remember that, you know, still we've got to make that that movement of humility, of just simply bending down to the earth with faith to pick up what it is that's just right before us with those same hands. Faith or, or sadha as the the Pali word is is the first in the list of wholesome mental factors that's given in the Abhidhamma, in the Buddhist psychology. It's at the, the top of the list. It's the number one factor in the list. So it comes before mindfulness. Mindfulness comes second. It, becomes, it comes before non-attachment, non-clinging. It comes before metta, loving-kindness. It comes before equanimity, that balance of mind, which the Buddha said to be the greatest happiness and the, the direction that the practice moves in. Faith also comes first in the list of five spiritual facu- faculties, those qualities of heart and mind that we're working to cultivate, to propel us along the path and to bring us to our goal. So in that list, it comes before energy even, and again, before mindfulness, before concentration, before wisdom. So we see this pattern in the teachings, it's very clear when we look at the suttas, when we look at the the ancient teachings, that um, faith is is repeatedly presented as the the launching point, the launching pad for everything else that's to follow in practice. And especially here in retreat, in this kind of a setting, this, this very particular kind of setting that we have here at the forest refuge, which is so, unusual in the world um, where we are being uh, asked to be more independent and more self directing and more self sustaining in our practice. um, The question of of faith and of our attitude to our practice in general um, becomes very central. I think this particular setting brings this quality much more into relief than some other ways that we might practice. Um, you know, if we go to a, a big, retra- big retreat over on the other side of the forest at the retreat center, there's a hundred yogis, um, there's a whole crew of teachers and staff. Um, the, the, energetically, it's like the faith is in the air. And we can just we can, we can borrow that faith from the whole environment and all the, the community around us. Here, it's, it's another way in which we're asked to be more self-reliant, to sustain our own faith and to uh, cultivate that um, that quality of mind which can help us to continue to carry on in the practice. Cultivate that um, reliably self-encouraging mind that Winnie spoke about in her last talk. I really like that phrase, a reliably self-encouraging mind. By and large, by the time that we get here, we know how to practice. That's the whole reason that we're here. (laughs) That's kind of the, the baseline for being here is that we know more or less what we're doing in our practice. Not that we're experts, not that we're masters, but we we have kind of a basic store of of we know the tools, we know the approach, we know how to use a schedule that works for us. We've read books, we've listened to talks, we've gone to classes, we've gone to retreats. So we know enough, at least, of the basic teachings, the basic methodology, the basic instructions to carry on more or less on our own. And so we get to really see how our our feelings about our practice, our attitude toward our practice uh, can be so pivotal. Once we have that basic foundation, how we're approaching the practice really becomes the, the linchpin to how it unfolds. How we approach our practice will profoundly influence the unfolding of our practice. So if we have this uh, self-encouraging attitude that, oh yeah, I can do this, this is doable, this is workable, Um, I trust this center, I trust the teaching, I trust the practice, I trust the Dharma, then our meditation, our practice is gonna unfold in a very different way than if we have an attitude of, oh, you know, I just can't do this, I've bitten off more than I can chew, you know, I'm just not up for it, what was I thinking? Just just simply the the attitude of mind will create the reality. how we approach it uh, makes a profound difference. Uh, also many years ago when I was just starting practice, uh, my husband cut out uh, a little uh, cartoon strip from the newspaper, this was in the days before it was all online, it was actually it had to be physical paper um, from the Simpsons and gave it to me and it was a little, uh, just like a three panel strip and uh, in, the, in the first box it shows Bart Simpson sitting on the sofa watching TV And then in the next uh, box, it shows uh, his father coming in and saying, I thought you had uh, saxophone practice or whatever instrument he's playing this afternoon. Uh, And then in the last frame, it it shows Bart, and he's saying, well, I wasn't immediately successful, so I gave it up. (laughs) So the attitude that we bring to practice is really important, and this is the very reason why um, so many people that have an interest in the Dharma really don't get you know, past the initial stages. There's that sense of, oh, well, it didn't come easily right away. So I can't do it. So faith is really essential to keeping us on track. And of course, in the Dharma, um, by faith, we're not talking about blind faith. The Buddha also made this very clear, um, which is, again, such a refreshing change because in so many um, religious traditions here in the West and other places around the world, faith and logic tend to be so much in opposition. Um, The definition of faith in many traditions can be that it's not logical, (laughs) that by its very nature, it's something that has to be simply accepted, has to be this kind of blind faith. But the Buddha didn't see it in this way. He called this kind of blind faith a false faith false faith, not real genuine faith, because it was not based on anything substantial, anything reliable. It's just faith based on simply the desire to believe, belief for the sake of belief in itself. There's a story uh, from the suttas, there's a sutta called the, the Chanki Sutta, about a young Brahmin named Chanki who put a number of questions to the Buddha. He had come to visit the Buddha. Um, He was from the Brahmin caste and had come with a group of Brahmins for some spiritual discussion with the Buddha. He was the youngest one in the group. You get the sense he was maybe a teenager, early 20-something with a lot of elders having a profound Dharma discussion with the Buddha. And uh, Chanki kept kind of jumping into the conversation, (laughs) wanting to insert himself into the conversation. You get this uh, sense of him being kind of an impetuous young hothead. You know, that still happens today. And he was kind of put off and put off by the elders that that he was with, telling him to mind his place, keep his place, that he'd have a chance to talk after everybody else had talked. Which eventually he got his turn to talk. And uh, what he asked the Buddha is, how does one protect the truth which is actually, I think, a good question for a young man to put to the Buddha. And the Buddha's response was very interesting. He said, if a person has faith, then they protect the truth by affirming, my faith is this. But they do not draw the conclusion only this is true and any other view is wrong. So, so holding that, that sense of what our faith is in this moment but not grabbing hold of it to the exclusion of all other possibilities because we haven't yet confirmed the truth. It's only a a faith, it's only a a theory at that point. The Buddha says in this way one protects the truth but there is as yet no discovery of the truth. And the Buddha then went on to describe to Chanki uh, how he recommended finding a teacher and how he recommended choosing uh, practice Uh, basically in a very skeptical way, uh, observing the teacher, observing how how the teacher behaved, how they spoke, how they acted, listening to their teachings, seeing if they made sense, if they were inspiring. So really putting the the teacher, the prospective teacher and teachings through quite a rigorous examination process. Um, But once uh, the the student, prospective student, was convinced, then uh, giving themselves over to this teacher's instruction wholeheartedly Uh, listening to the teachings, taking them to heart, putting them into practice as best they could, and applying themselves to the practice to see what fruit it might yield. The Buddha went on to say that when one exerts themselves in practice, one comes to realize the ultimate truth, and one sees it by the penetration of it with understanding. That is how there is discovery of truth. But there is as yet no final arrival at truth. So this is kind of the intermediate phase of beginning to get a clue, (laughs) beginning to get get an inkling. But it's not yet the final arrival at truth. How is truth finally arrived at? Final arrival at truth is the repetition, the keeping and being, the development of that same practice. That is how there is final arrival at truth. So this is just one, again, of many examples, many places in the teachings where the Buddha is asserting that importance of faith as a jumping off point, as a starting place, but also as holding it lightly as a working hypothesis, recognizing that there is not that final confirmation of truth yet, and that the the faith has to then be followed on by all of the, the difficult and the rigorous work of repeated investigation, so that we can in time come to see what is the real and final truth to see if our our faith holds up to to scrutiny. And at the end of the discussion with Chanki, Chanki says, well, I used to think who are these bald headed contemplatives, these menial dark offspring of the kinsman's feet? Who are they to know the Dharma? But now Master Gotama has inspired within me a respect for contemplatives. And he professes his desire to uh, go to the Buddha as a lay follower for the remainder of his life. So Chanky was duly impressed by the Buddha's explanation. So the Buddha did caution us against blind faith, and he encouraged us to uh, hold our faith lightly. But what I wanted to talk a little bit more about tonight was not uh, is not so much um, faith in the particular technical sense that it's usually laid out in terms of the triple gem this one that we chant about when we come together in the evenings for the talks although for some of us you know we may be familiar with that that framework for thinking about faith that may really resonate for us and I didn't want to talk about it as some sort of abstract or, or doctrinal faith. When we, we talk about faith in a doctrinal sense, it often involves talking about faith in karma, faith in the Four Noble Truths, that whole aspect of of right understanding, that element of the Eightfold Path. But I wanted to talk more about um, faith in terms of just the immediate faith of the moment, which is really what we're mobilizing here, what we we were called upon to mobilize to sustain our practice here the faith of the moment, the faith uh, in the moment, the quality of the mind that trusts experience, that trusts the reality that's already in front of us, that this is how things have come to be. So this is more the faith that this moment really has in it already everything that we need to awaken. All of the material that we need for awakening is already here in this moment in front of us. It's that quality of faith, that trust in the present moment that allows us to really sink into the present moment, to really connect with the present moment, Um, which is very much a leap of faith. Because as we all know, there are so many other things we could be doing with the mind in this moment, (laughs) other than just noticing it, being with it, being in it. There's so many other thought worlds that we can construct and inhabit, so many other thought trains that we can hop on and go to all sorts of different places, Uh, most of them much more exciting than this one (laughs) here in the present moment. Uh, The present moment tends to be uh, remarkably unremarkable, tends to be quite ordinary most of the time. So every moment of mindfulness, really, we can think of it as an act of faith to show up for this one, that it's worthwhile, that what we need is here. And every moment of mindfulness is, is a confirmation of faith. It's a, it's a kind of a commitment. Uh, we're, we're making that commitment to this moment to be here for it, that this is what we choose. We choose to be here as opposed to all of the other things that we might choose to do with this moment. The less faith, faith that we have that this moment is really enough um, the less we can fully connect, and the more we tend to struggle, the more we tend to get caught up in some kind of struggle with what's happening in the present moment. And this may be very obvious, or it can get very subtle. It can get very sneaky. You know, at times it's it's so obvious that we're caught up in a big struggle with the present moment. We don't like what's happening. We want something else. The mind is is. is Uh, thrashing around or trying to work with what's happening in the present moment trying to find some way to make it okay at times that's very obvious but the struggle with the present moment or the resisting of the present moment this form that not trusting the present moment can take in our practice can also become quite subtle and again here in in the silence of longer term uh, more independent retreat this can also come to the forefront We can see just those very subtle tiny ways in which the mind holds back, holds back from really fully investing in the present moment. We're so deeply conditioned to do something. We're so deeply conditioned to do something about our present moment experience. This is a conditioning that starts at the very least right from the beginning of this life, you know, if not for many, many lifetimes uh, through the past, we might see that conditioning stretching all the way back to the very beginning of sentient life on this planet. That's just built into how sentient life functions, that we have this innate uh, tendency to manipulate experience, to move towards what's pleasant, to move away from what's unpleasant. It's just, it's in our DNA, really. It's in our cells. So it comes very, very naturally. So we could say that we've been conditioned not to trust the present moment. We've really been conditioned to to believe in ourselves that the present moment doesn't have what we need, that we really need to be continuously looking for what we need somewhere else, trying to get hold of it. And we can come to see, as we're here in the silence, how that lack of faith in the present moment can color our experience. It can affect what we see and how we see it. As we go deeper into our practice though, we're usually able to trust in the present moment more, although we do need to remind ourselves of that regularly, which is uh, part of the motivation for the talk tonight. There was one yogi uh, today that I spoke with who was talking about how by the time that we get here to do a retreat at the forest refuge, For some significant length of time you know we've got x number of years of practice under our belt and we've done x number of retreats and we really intellectually believe in the dharma and there can be this feeling that oh yeah my faith is strong it can be something that we we take for granted that we assume but then we we get here and we get into practice a little bit only to find that there's this irony that the doubt rears its ugly head in one way or another, again, either either gross or subtle. So we get to see how faith is not a commitment that we make just once and then we're done, you know, much like getting married <laughs> for anybody who's ever been married. It's not like you say those vows and then smooth sailing you know you're committed for the rest of your life it's a commitment that we have to make over and over and over again with each new experience that arises okay am I gonna trust this one am I gonna fully be with this one Uh, with each new moment really am I gonna fully give myself to this moment to just let it be enough Uh, in my own practice this is mostly what I need from my teachers (laughs) And when I want to go in to speak with a teacher again, you know, I pretty much, at this point, kind of can navigate my own practice in terms of technique, but we really just do need to hear from each other over and over again that it's okay. This moment has what we need. We can trust it. This is a little uh, quote from Wendell Berry, He's one of my favorite Dharma teachers. He says that there are, it seems, two muses, the muse of inspiration, who gives us inarticulate visions and desires And the muse of realization who returns again and again to say it is yet more difficult than you thought it is the willingness to hear the second muse that keeps us cheerful in our work to hear only the first is to live in the bitterness of disappointment so this is a big part of the role of faith is to keep us cheerful in our work (laughs) to keep us keep the mind self-encouraging reliably self-encouraging One of the characteristics of faith is that it brings clarity to the mind, which makes sense when we feel confident in our meditation. then we're not so distracted or discouraged by every little thing that comes up that's difficult. We're more able to see clearly, okay, now it's this, now it's this, now it's this, without constantly second guessing what we're seeing or we're feeling because there's that sense of trust and confidence there. There's not so much of a pull into that habit of trying to figure out what we ought to be doing with the present moment, how we ought to be working with it, how we ought to be managing it. So there's this way in which as as faith deepens, our practice actually becomes simpler and simpler because all of that extraneous uh, working with the present moment tends to fall away. And it becomes naturally just more joyful and more relaxed in that simplicity because we're able to trust more and more that we don't have to actually do the practice we don't have to make it work the more that we're able to trust in the present moment that it has what we need if we just show up for it the more we come to see how the practice really just does itself and we probably all had moments of experiencing that that the unfolding of the practice is actually uh, completely impersonal (laughs) just like everything else. it's this irony that the, the, our, our spiritual path is not exempt from the same truths as every other activity in our lives. It actually is subject to, to the same exact truths. And it, it's actually uh, delusion, a form of delusion, in addition to just being a big burden, a heavy burden to bear, to think that I have to do it that I have to make it happen. I have to make the practice work. I have to make it bear fruit. I have to make my time here be worthwhile, be productive. You know, I've got to get the insight. I've got to get the enlightenment. That's a whole lot of I. (laughs) It's really a source of a lot of suffering when we buy into that. If we feel like our time here or our spiritual path in general is this this personal project, the self-improvement project, that's all about us and that our, our success or failure as human beings or in this life or our, or our value or our worth as human beings depends on how we do it, if we do it right or not. Um, it's a whole lot of suffering and it also really clouds our vision of what's happening. It pulls this, this veil across the eye of mindfulness so that we can't really see what's happening. We're so caught up in the, the doing of it and the feeling like we have to make it happen. So it's a great relief to realize that awakening is actually completely natural. It's a completely uh, organic process when the conditions are supportive. That's kind of the linchpin <laughs> when the conditions are supportive. So uh, as some of you may or may not know, I don't think I've met too many of you here uh, before, but my my full-time job is actually being a mom. I have two young children, and I'm sure others of you here have have raised children or just spent time around uh, young children. And it's so amazing to see the process of their development, especially in in the early years of life, that that process of learning to walk, um, moving through crawling, learning to walk, the process of acquiring language, um, picking up words and then making sentences and seeing that become more and more sophisticated. And it's, it's really uh, such a, a mystery. <laughs> you know, we, we still, with all of our scientific sophistication these days, don't entirely understand why or how that happens. It's just something that's innate in the hu- human organism, you know, if everything is healthy and working properly. There's this innate... Uh, desire somewhere within the human organism, programmed into the human organism, to begin to move about, to get up on two feet, to start to make sounds, to begin to reach out with communication. That's just, it's innate in us. And, you know, it's its also delusion to think that we can make that happen. You know, we can't put that desire into the young child. It has to be there in them to get drawn out. Although, of course, we can give supporting conditions. So it's very analogous to, to the process of practice here. There really is this innate pull, this innate movement of the human organism to evolve in this way and to awaken and to come to realize the Dharma in these ways. So without deciding it or without wishing it or without, without even really understanding it, the further we walk along the path, we come to see that it's it's really the same with awakening. You know, What is it that gets us here? It's, it's such a mystery how this happens. We may have ideas about what's got us here, what our path has been, what's drawn us here, but why is it that that pull has awakened in us? It's really a mystery, just as, as it is with a young child. There are so many of us as human beings who never do fo- feel that pull. You know, it doesn't awaken in so many of our hearts. That so many of us don't feel that inspiration. But in some of us it does, it does awaken that 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 movement towards awakening that movement towards wisdom it's it's that it's that innate maturing of the human heart that for some mysterious reason you know that when the time is right the conditions are right it wakes up and it brings us here and it gets us here to do this practice and that that uh, latent tendency that that inclination within us is there not because we're great people or we've cultivated it or we want it to happen it's just conditions playing out it's just because we're human because of our humanity it's a it's a natural uh, movement of human beings when conditions are right to move in the direction of awakening and wisdom and just as with learning to walk and learning to talk we don't have to make it happen all we really need to do is just to let nature take its course, to provide the supportive conditions, and then just to let nature take its course. This is a great uh, quote from Sayada Upandita that I repeat uh, probably in almost every dharma talk I give. <laughs> He's, he said famously that uh, every moment of mindfulness brings the yogi one moment closer to full enlightenment, whether they like it or not. <laughs> so it really doesn't matter what we think about what we're doing here whether we think it's leading us to enlightenment or not, whether we think that this moment of mindfulness is worthwhile, whether we think that we're practicing well or practicing poorly, it really doesn't matter what we think about it, because it's human nature. It will unfold according to, to natural laws, the laws of, the hu- of being a human being. It's very interesting in the teaching on um, transcendental dependent arising, which I'm not going to get into too much right now, (laughs) but this is the counterpart teaching which you've probably heard to the the teaching on dependent arising, dependent origination, which explains how we get stuck in samsara, how we get stuck in suffering. So this this, uh, complementary teaching on transcendental dependent origination or dependent arising uh, describes how we get out of it. And again this process, this cycle of, of coming out of suffering and into clarity and wisdom and understanding, it all hinges on faith. So faith is that pivotal factor that, that pops us out, that helps us to step off of the round of suffering, out of the round of samsara, through connection with suffering itself. So it's said that the, the cause for the arising of faith is really taking in the first noble truth really taking in suffering. It's it's described in this way, that when we really get the the suffering, then faith arises again spontaneously. It's the natural movement of the heart. That when when we're confronted with the uh, conundrum, (laughs) with the quandary that we're stuck in as human beings, then there's this natural illumination of faith in the heart, this uh, intuition or inkling, which we probably all had, that there's gotta be a way out of this. There's gotta be another way. There's gotta be another way to be in the world. There's gotta be another way to be in this mind or body. There's gotta be another option. (laughs) There's gotta be a plan B. So it's kind of the awakening of faith. And we we, uh, nurture that by really taking in this this truth of our suffering, by really seeing how caught we are. That's what ignites that spark of faith, that there is another alternative. And so much of our practice is, is trying to move away from that truth of the first noble truth you know this is this is the one we really want to skip (laughs) really taking in that truth of our own suffering but it's essential it's essential and this is something that also we need to be reminded about over and over and over again that okay here is suffering suffering is the truth that will set us free it's what will fan the the flames of our faith so that we can sustain our practice and follow it through to the end when when we recognize our suffering with clarity um, when it we ignite that quality of faith and bring that to the present moment then we will start to see what we need to see to awaken insight will reveal itself so again this is an organic part of the process we don't have to make it happen because when we commit to the present moment when we really show up for it with faith uh, with a willingness to be there fully then what we will see is the truth of suffering. What we will see is the truth of dukkha. Again, because it's there. We don't have to make it be there. We don't have to convince ourselves that it's there. We don't have to do anything for dukkha to be present. It's already present. (laughs) So if we have that faith that allows us to really settle into the present moment, then we will start to see. It's all very organic, it's all very natural. We don't have to make any particular effort to get it, to get the insight. The insight will come just from the being in the present moment. This is another uh, short poem from Wendell Berry. It's called, What We Need Is Here. Geese appear high over us, pass and the sky closes. Abandon, as in love or sleep, holds them to their way. Clear in the ancient faith, what we need is here. And we pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. So it's just this quality of faith that allows us to be quiet in heart and clear in eye so that we can just see what's already true. It's helpful to remember, I found, that faith is a mental state, or what we call a sankara, a mental factor. So it actually doesn't have anything to do with ideas or opinions, although ideas and opinions and philosophies and all sorts of things, all sorts of thinking things, may obviously come out of that place of faith. But in and it, in it of itself, it's just simply that quality of mind that trusts, that's confident. It's counterpart, of course, of doubt, which is the same kind of quality. It's also a mental factor, the coloration of the mind. So uh, the doubt itself is not all the thoughts that we have about why we can't do it or why we can't do it here, or why it's not working, but, but just simply the coloration of mind that puts us in that doubting mood. It can be really helpful to realize that uh, both faith and doubt are moods, just like moods of love, moods of irritation, moods of sadness, moods of gratitude. These are all colorations of the mind, and then out of that will, become, will come the whole... Story that we construct from that mood, influenced by that mood. So the rigid holding to ideas and opinions actually has nothing to do with faith. The ideas and the opinions themselves are not faith. Um, And in in most cases, as we tend to see for ourselves, uh, they're really a manifestation of fear or uncertainty. They're actually, ironically, a manifestation of lack of faith holding to fixed views the, is generally a symptom of lack of faith, symptom of doubt. There's this uh, irony that, that the more strongly we profess our faith, the more uh, uh, urgently and, and in detail we, we elaborate it within our own minds or to other people, uh, it's often a case of uh, the lady doth protest too much. You know, The more forcefully we feel like we need to convince ourselves or convince others of our faith, the more chances are that there's, there's actually doubt lurking beneath it we're trying to convince ourselves to talk ourselves into certainty and of course we won't always be suffused with perfect faith Um, that comes much further down the line there are times obviously when the mind will get tired will get depressed will get lost Um, there's a great quote from Edward R. Murrow anyone who isn't confused really doesn't understand the situation So this is this is why we come together. You know, even in just a very small, extremely quiet, secluded community like this, there's a real value to just sharing the space, sharing the energy with each other, supporting each other just through our presence. In the early days of my practice over at the retreat center, people would sometimes come up to me after a retreat and maybe maybe you've had this experience too and say, "Thank you for your practice." And I would think, what the, what the heck are they thanking me for? I like, didn't talk to this person the whole time I was here. I didn't even look at them. But, you know, as we learn, it's just simply by showing up that we support each other. So we can borrow um, faith from each other, just from the simple fact that there are others here doing it, that they're plugging away. Um, you know, they really think there's something to be gained here, you know, so maybe we can keep going a little bit longer. And especially here at the forest refuge, this place is is literally built on faith you know the the physical uh, infrastructure itself you know it was uh, just supported by so many people who had faith that a center like this uh, would be useful that the, the the possibility of awakening here and now in this very life is real, and that if we create the supportive conditions for it, it can happen so it 's almost like just even in the timbers of the buildings, there's this there's this energy of faith, of all of the the many people that believe that we can do it. Even at those times when we may not believe it for ourselves. So the the as our practice matures, we move through phases of. Initially, having to draw more and more of our faith from those around us, from teachers and teachings, which is entirely appropriate, to, as we progress through our practice and see uh, how we come to confirm the teachings for ourselves in our own experience, there's more confirmed faith, that the fa- our faith is more reliable based on our own direct experience, that we see, oh, this really is true, and that one also really is true. So we start to get pieces of the puzzle until, at some point, we... The whole puzzle falls into place and all the pieces come together and we can see the big picture and we arrive at a place of unwavering faith, seeing the truth of what the Buddha taught uh, for ourselves in a very deep way, in such a powerful way that uh, doubt in a certain way never arises again. We've seen so clearly the truth for ourselves that there'll never be any unknowing of it. There'll never be any way that someone could talk us out of it or that we could change our opinion about it, change our understanding of it. We've really gotten that this is how it is. Sometimes this is compared to the way that we understand uh, the law of gravity. You know, Nobody's going to talk us out of that. <laughs> Not because we have some you know really rigid, elaborate, philosoph- philosophical view around it, but just simply because we know. We've seen enough times that if you drop something, it falls down. It doesn't fall up. <laughs> So it's just something that we know in this very direct, immediate way from our own experience. And it's said that at a certain point in the practice, this comes to be the way in which we know the Dharma, the truth of the Dharma, that this really is how things are, that everything is changing, that nothing is permanently satisfying, that there's really no soul or self behind this me thing that's going on here. We get this on a certain level, and there's just no turning back, which is sometimes called entering the stream. And it's interesting that this this first stage of kind of powerful awakening of stream entry is also defined in terms of faith, that the the distinguishing characteristic of of that turning point in our practice is said to be that there's at that point unwavering faith in the teachings that we really have known and seen for ourselves. And there's certain uh, qualities and quantities of doubt that just will never return because we've known for ourselves. So I think that's the end of my comments on faith for tonight. I might just take a moment again before the chanting just to see what's going on. See if there is some sense of aspiration there. That our practice may be of benefit, be of great benefit for ourselves, for all of those that we come into direct contact with, all of those beyond our immediate reach that they might impact. Seeing if we can connect with the aspiration that the work that we're doing here may really spread out through the world to be a cause for greater good for greater peace, for greater harmony. So let's go ahead and chant the sharing of blessings.